in our uh, society, in a whole lot of ways, we love uh, the idea of love. Uh, if you think about it, uh, songs, movies, uh, uh, artwork, tons of things that are written kind of as an ode to love. Uh, you see it all around us. It's one of the things that I think, and it's a good thing, in our society that's divided in so many ways, we can agree on the idea, well, love is important and loving one another is important. And in fact, I was thinking about it this week. You could probably take uh, just the first verse here from chapter or verse eight that we're looking at this morning. Owe no one anything except to love each other and put it on a T-shirt or, or, or make a meme out of it and, and post it online and you get a whole lot of likes, right? You get a lot of people buying that shirt like, yes, owe nothing except to love one another. We like that idea. We like it in an idea anyway. This idea of love is important. But what I want us to think about is, is what does it actually mean? And, and what do we mean even when we're saying, well, love is great and it's it's wonderful, you know, when you think about the way our society talks about it, a lot of times, a lot of times it gets described as a feeling, right? Being in love or the in love feeling. And so it gets kind of chalked up to an emotion that that's what love is. And it gets described that way a lot of times. Or in our culture today, it gets kind of described as uh, loving someone and loving them well is just affirming them right where they are, right? Just telling them that everything's great and wonderful and, and that's what it means to love. And so we get different ideas kind of floating around in the culture about what does it mean and, and what does it mean to love one another or as it says here to own no one anything except to love each other. And so there's a whole lot of ways we could think about it. You know, the last couple of weeks as we've been in Romans, especially as we were in Romans 13, I kept saying, well, it's more complicated than that. There's a lot to this. And I think even when we think about the idea of love, how I would echo that. It's, it's more complicated than that. It's not just a feeling, although it could be a feeling. Uh, but when we start to think about the way Scripture talks about it, uh, there's several different ways that it gets talked about. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a gro- great book uh, many years ago called The Four Loves, in which he takes the idea of love in the Bible and the words that are used and, and kind of fleshes those out and helps us understand the different ways in which the Bible talks about it. And in, in that book, he talks about uh, love, uh, just the Greek words that are there. Eros is this idea of romantic love, kind of comes with it as intense feelings. And a lot of times when we talk about that, that's kind of what I think a lot of people in our culture mean when they think about like being in love and a feeling. Uh, there's uh, philos, which is uh, friendship, brotherly love. It's actually where we get that word. Uh, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love is based on that. That idea of philos is this locking arms together, supporting one another, uh, love kind of in a relationship like that. And then there's storge, which is affection for that which is familiar, something that, that we're used to and is familiar and it brings us good feelings. So sometimes people say storge is like the idea of uh, love of a old sweater that you really love, right? That it gives you this feeling that it's like a familiar. But then there's agape, which is the divine love characterized by sacrifice and the pursuit of another's good. And so the Bible talks about it in all those different ways. And so you start to think about, well, big picture, the way it talks about it. But then I think we could even kind of distill that down uh, simpler than that. And Jonathan Edwards would talk about, if, if you know Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest theologians who ever lived, a great American theologian in the 1700s, but he talked about love in kind of two big categories. One in which things that bring us joy and satisfaction, contentment, receiving beauty. And so I'll just call that love of joy. Things that bring us joy, things that we just immediately feel in that way. 
uh, I, I said this in the earlier service and, uh, Chris and I were texting this week. They just had their baby. And, and he says, um, immediately the first text is like, I'm overwhelmed with, with love for this child, like more so than I ever thought I could be. And it's that love of joy. Like you don't have to do anything for it. You hold that baby for the first time and it's there, right? You're just overwhelmed with it. And so kind of coming at you in that way. Uh, but the, maybe the, the other category, this idea would be, uh, the way Edwards, what's coming at you, but then what kind of goes out, love of kindness, that you're seeking others best, good towards others, that you're loving or giving or wanting to show beauty, you're wanting their best in what you do, and so love of kindness. And so you can kind of break it down into those two categories. And so as we think about that and that idea of what love is and what the Bible talks about, I want us to think about what it's talking about in our text when it tells us to owe nothing or, or owe no one anything except to love each other. The big idea of what it's talking about here. And then what does that look like? How do we actually live that out? And so that's the way I want us to look at this last part of Romans chapter 13. First, what does it mean to owe one another, nothing but to love, this big idea that's there. Then secondly, how do we live that out? And then lastly, the power with which to do that. Because some of the things that it's talking about, when we kind of see the fullness of it, it's not easy. And so how do we have the power in which to do that? And so let's think about the big idea. What does it mean to owe nothing but to love? As he says there in verse eight, no, owe no one anything except to love each other. And so one of the things, just kind of many, uh, lesson in hermeneutics, right? Hermeneutics, how to study and read our Bible. We want to make sure we're taking it in context, that we're not taking things out of context. If we take it out of context, we can then be saying things that the Bible doesn't actually say if we miss it. And so I've heard people take this verse here in verse eight, owe no one anything except to love each other and kind of make a blanket statement that that means that you can't ever borrow money, for example, that you can't owe anyone anything that you only love one another. But in the context, I don't think that's what he's saying. It doesn't fit with what's here. Because if you look at what we were talking about just the last couple weeks and you go back just to verse, verse seven says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And he's talking about then, and then he turns the corner and says, owe no one anything. Well, he just told you to pay to those that you owe. And so What's the connection there of what the point of what he's saying here when he talks about uh, owe no one anything except to love each other? And let me just remind you, when we're reading through the Bible, we're reading through Romans. It was a letter written to the church, the early church in Rome. And oftentimes the way they would have heard it is they would have sat down and someone would have stood up and read the letter in full to them. And so oftentimes when we kind of drill down and we're just looking at a, a few verses here and each week we're kind of moving along, it's easy us for to forget the immediate context and what it would have been like to just hear it all at once. And so if you go back, I would say 45, maybe 60 seconds of reading through Romans, right? So now we're in chapter 12. If we just rewind a little bit, you're hearing this read. It says this in Romans chapter 12 and verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. And so he's telling you that to show honor that you love one another. And then we get here at the end of verse seven and he says, show honor to whom honor is owed. Oh, no one, anything except to love each other. And I think the connection that Paul's making, and I think even in context here, if we look closely at what he's saying is there's a link here to say that in everything that you're doing, 
whether it's paying debts, whether it's being subject to the government, whether it's responding in kindness to those that are being ugly to you, love everyone and everything that you're doing. Let everything spring forth out of love. And I think that's what he's pointing us to in the connection that he's making, that turn every behavior in your life, everything that you're doing, everything that you're about should be out of the debt of love that you're seeking to pay to others, to love everyone around you in every way. And so when you start to think about what that looks like, a mindset and all you do. And so I was thinking about a quote from, uh, as I thought about that, that week, this week, and what does it mean to love and everything? It, it brought to mind a quote from, uh, Mother Teresa, right? If you know anything about Mother Teresa's story, she, she spent her life in Calcutta serving the poor and doing all these things, these small acts of just service to people around her. And she had this quote where she would say, not everyone can do great things, but we can all do small things in great love. And I thought what a beautiful picture that was of everything in her life she was seeking to do out of the love of Christ and the way she honored people and the way she cared for them, the way she cared for the poor, oftentimes nothing glamorous about what she was doing, but she said she wanted to do all of it out of great love. And I think there's that idea here that everything that we're doing is springing from loving those around us. Uh, it reminds me of a, of an encouraging book that I read a few years ago by a guy named Bob Goff. And he wrote a book called Love Does. And Bob Goff is, I think he's an attorney and he's been a bunch of different things. But the, the, the book is just about all these things in his life in which he tries to love everybody around him. That love does, that it's an action. And it's so encouraging when you read the book because it's just him telling all these stories of all this cool stuff that he's gone and done. But I think it captures this idea that we're, we're seeking to do everything from heart of love to those around us. So then the question becomes, well, what does that mean? What does it look like? Uh, what kind of love are we talking about here? And so it's, it's not just a feeling. It's not just a warm and fuzzy thing. It, it's this love of kindness, this outwardly focus that we want to share with other people, right? You, you see that from the context here and what he says, uh, verse 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And just from there, from the context, you get this idea of love your neighbor as yourself, pursuing others' good. You don't have to know the Greek to know the word he uses over and over there is agape. It is that kindness love. It is the outwardly focused love that is self-sacrificing. You get that just in the context and what he says here, to love others and to pursue their best in every way. And so he frames that there and, and summarizes it. The same way in which Jesus summarizes the commandments, uh, he says to love your neighbor as yourself. And so I want you just to think about what a radical idea that is as we start to think about what it means to love. And I was reading this week and I came across something that uh, John Piper wrote on this, this particular passage. And he says it like this. He says it so well. He says, in other words, make the degree of your self-seeking be the measure of your self-giving. The word as is very radical and love your neighbor as yourself. As, it means that if you are energetic in pursuing your own happiness, be energetic in pursuing the happiness of your neighbor. If you are creative in pursuing your own happiness, be creative in pursuing the happiness of your neighbor. If you are persevering in pursuing your own happiness, be persevering in pursuing the happiness of your neighbor. 
And so in context here, and what he's talking about, love is a choice of wanting to do best for those around you in the same way that you would do for yourself. To love others with self-sacrificing love that you make as much about those around you as you do for your own needs. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so love is a choice. It's not just a feeling. It's something that we're called to do and to be part of. And so the question then becomes, well, what does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself? And what does the Bible tell us about actually loving others? And so the way I would summarize it as we think about that, how do we do that? What does that entail to, to have this kindness love towards others? And I would say, uh, I would summarize it like this. It, we, we do so in word and in deed, right? The, the words we use and the things that we say, but also our actions, that it's both and. It's not either or, but it's both of them. Word and deed in everything we do. And so if you look here, Paul makes a, a connection between love and, and the law. And he talks about the law here in this. And he says it's fulfilling the law to love others. And so there's an important connection there. And so I want us to think about what that means. And so it's important for us to stop and think really what scripture tells us when it talks about loving one another and speaking the truth and all of that and how it comes together. If we're going to uh, love well in word. And so our culture today would say to us some things. Uh, there's some, some ideas floating around in our culture that are exact opposite actually of what the Bible says in a whole lot of ways. And one of those today is this idea that your feelings are over everything else, that how you feel about something is what is true. And so your feelings stand supreme over everything else. And so if you're going to love me, you have to validate my feelings. You have to say whatever I'm feeling in the moment is, yes, that's true, and I accept it, and that's great, and I validate that, and I'm with you in that. But that's not true. And, and the Bible tells us that over and over, and I want you to think about why that's a problem when we start to operate that way on our feelings versus uh, objective truth and the way God has revealed it. And so when we operate on our subjective feelings and we say things like, you're not actually loving me if you don't validate my feelings, that's a very childish way to think. And I say childish for this reason, because my children have done this to me for years. They come in and they've just about outgrown it, right? So giving them credit as they've gotten older, it's gotten less. Quinn, who is 10, I think still holds on to this every once in a while. But they will say things like, if you really loved me, you would let me stay up late, right? Or if you really love me, you would let me have ice cream for dinner. Or if you, and they frame it that way, that you would, would validate what I want to do and how I'm feeling right now, if you really love me. And I go, no, <laughs> that's not true. And they say, well, if you love me, you let me stay up. I say, no, you got to go to bed. You have to get up for school tomorrow and you need to be rested. And, and the fact is I'm telling you no, and I'm telling you that you need to go to bed because I love you. It's not because I don't love you. It's because I see that there's more working here that you need to see that you maybe don't see in the moment. And so because I love you, I'm not going to just let you do whatever you want. I'm not going to just say your feelings are king in this. And so we speak the truth in love to one another. And I want you to think about why that's important to be truly loving to want the best of those around you. There are going to be times where we speak the truth in love that's correcting and the reason it's so important for us to think about is that we are sinful people, all of us. We all operate in our flesh in the moment, our sinful flesh. We think about things and, and see things in a distorted light at different times. And oftentimes when our emotions get involved, they can be built on lies 
that then carry us along and we're so excited about this is what's true when it's not true. And so we need those that love us to speak the truth and love to us to help bring us back into alignment with what God has said. And so it's very difficult. This is a hard thing. Emotions are real and important and and I'm not making light of them, but they are built on certain beliefs that we hold. And so it can be very, uh, a big struggle in that. I remember reading a book last year by a guy named uh, Jonathan Haidt. Uh, he's not a believer. Uh, he's done all sorts of research on how we operate and how we think and why and how our emotions are involved. Uh, and uh, the book is really helpful in a lot of ways. But one of the things he said in the book is he, he gives this example that I found very helpful. And he talks about our emotions and our feelings and then our intellect and our reason. And he said, our emotions and our feelings are like an elephant And our emotion and intellect are like the rider that's on top of the elephant. And what he said is what happens is when we get emotionally charged and something comes at us, the elephant takes off and goes in one direction. And it's very hard for our reason and our intellect to get a hold of what's going on, that it's so powerful that it kind of takes us down the road. And so he was using it just in the way political discourse and why we get so heated and upset that we hear something that frustrates us and where emotions have taken off and our intellects left behind. And we can't even hear an argument now. And so it was a helpful thing to think about because when we build everything on my emotion and how I feel, and then you combine our sinfulness in the way that we operate at different times, that's not a good way to operate. But our world says that today, that your feelings are supreme. But scripture tells us that we need God's word to stand over us. Notice what he says here, that fulfilling of the law, right? Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And you could easily see how our culture could make that be, well, love does no wrong to a neighbor. So you just have to affirm everything that they say and feel. But he says here, God's word tells us that love is the fulfilling of the law, that God has given us his law to show us how things actually are. And they help constrain evil. They help show us what is true of us what is true of God, where we have failed, but also how to then live in light of who we are in God and what he's done for us. And so God's word is there to help show us what is true. And so if we are truly going to be loving to one another and those around us, we're going to continue to point back to the truth of who God is. We're going to speak the truth in love. If you remember just a couple weeks ago when we were in Romans chapter 12, we talked about the difference between blessing and cursing. And so blessing is speaking the truth in an affirming way that we're saying what is true and we're saying it with great grace and humility, cursing, being cutting and being ugly and kind of putting people down. And so we're never called to love people in that way where it's cursing, where it's uh, an ugly, mean spirited point. But we're we're called uh, to bless, to speak the truth in an affirming way. And if we truly love those around us, we're going to make a habit of doing that. And so I'll give you an example that came just even even from being here uh, in the church and, and preaching and teaching. And I, re- I remember going home at different times and uh, talking to my wife about the sermon. And Joanna will say, oh, you said this and that was really good and that was really helpful. And she'll say something really sweet. And then she'll say, but your introduction was kind of long. And she'll say to me in a, in a very uh, affirming way, in a very gracious way, but she'll, you, you got kind of in the weeds on that. You got lost in one part. And I remember the first time she told me, she said it very kindly and very gracious. And and the sinfulness of my heart was like, 
she doesn't know what she's talking, you know, kind of like, and I remember going back and listening to it later and being like, she's right. (laughs) The introduction was terrible and it was way too long and I totally got lost. And it was because she loved me that she told me the truth. It wasn't cutting. It wasn't being mean spirited. It was because she loved me. She said, well, here's, here's part of it. And so the truth is that if we truly love one another, that we're going to be doing that. We're going to be speaking the truth to one another. It reminds me of a line from a song that I love, but in the middle of it, it says, what if I was wrong and no one cared to mention? And you start to think about what it means to really be loving someone. Sometimes we'll avoid those conversations because it's like, if I tell you that I may upset you. But when we do that, I'm actually being selfish. I'm more worried about how you're going to respond than to what is true. And I want you to know the truth. And so sometimes we sidestep that and that's not truly loving. And so living, loving in word is we're going to speak the truth to one another. But when we think about this idea of this kindness, love, it's not just in word. It's also in deed. And so I want us just to think about what it means to be loving indeed in our actions and so we could say it real simply. The first part, anyway, I think is, is pretty straightforward in the sense of if we're seeking to love others, we want their best and we're, we're, we're uh, pursuing their good in the same way our own, loving our neighbor as ourself. And so that means serving and coming alongside and basic needs and helping, right? And so Jesus says to his disciples, the night before he die, dies, he gathers them together and he washes their feet. And he says, as I have just done to you, you're also going to do. You're going to show people what the love of God is like by simple acts of service. You're going to be servants to those around you. And so there's this clear part of of scripture of when we love other people, it's simple acts of love and kindness. It can be as simple as, as helping your neighbor cut their yard or do yard work or taking someone a meal that needs one. Right? Uh, this week, uh, the Cheeks, uh, their daughter Mary Gail was in the hospital with an appendix. And so... Uh, Molly sent out a thing. We need meals. The cheeks are in the hospital and this is what's going on. And by the time I clicked on the thing to look at the meal thing, it was full. Everybody here went, yes, we'll do that. We will take, we will meet their needs in the way we would meet our own. And so they're in need right now. So let's go do that. And so that's just a simple act of kindness of going forward. And yes, we want to love and care for one another in that way. And we show the love of Christ in doing that simple acts of service. And so that's part of it. Just the the word and then the deed and then operating in that. But then there's a second part here, and it's it's the second half of what he's saying in verses 11 and 14. I want you to think about loving others and deeds in this way. Look at what it says in verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that then the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And I want you to think about how that's a loving act when we begin to live in light of what we believe. When we begin to treasure Jesus and saying his glory is worth living our lives that are in alignment with who he is and what he's done for us in every area of our life. And in doing so, we're showing what is most important in the way that we live. We're showing what is true about the, our lives. What is true about the time that God gives us to walk on this earth. He talks here about, uh, the, uh, that your salvation is nearer now to us than when we first believed. 
And so we, we live with an urgency of seeing the truth of how things are and living out of that. And in so doing, you're showing that God is worthy. He is worthy of every area of our life, everything of who we are. And I want you to think about how that's loving towards those around you, because in a way you are showing what is true. You're showing a different way. You're being salt and light in the earth to those around you who are struggling. And so it talks about don't walk in these ways, right? And it talks about uh, really the, the image that Paul gives, and he does this a lot in his letters, is the difference of walking in the spirit versus walking in the flesh. The flesh being your earthly sinful desires versus walking and seeking to honor God in all things. And so he says, don't walk in these ways, right? Don't let us walk properly as in the daytime, verse 13. Not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and in jealousy. And he tells us, don't walk in these different ways. And so I was thinking about how many times in my life I've had friendships and I've known people that were walking, seeking to find happiness and contentment in their life by ordering it around uh, alcohol. Consuming it in a way that is not healthy, overindulging. And I've yet to meet a person that's operating in that way that has this life of fulfillment and contentment. I haven't met that person yet. The, The same would be true of the second one where he talks about sexual sin. I've known a lot of guys in my life that have sought, uh, contentment and happiness by ordering their life around their sexual desire. And it's a disaster because you weren't created that way. Wasn't meant to be the thing that holds your life together. The same is true when it even talks here about quarreling and jealousy and living your life in this way, right? Have you ever known someone like that, that just, they live their life in like gossip and putting people down and they're always seem to be fighting with somebody. It's a miserable way to live. But when he calls us to walk in the light and to live honoring God in everything, do you understand how that's loving those around you? You're showing them a different way. You're showing them what is true of who God is and the way we are created to be. It makes me think of uh, Desiring God, uh, John Piper's ministry that he's had for years. He has this, this statement that's kind of their, their banner statement over everything. And, w- and what he says is that he is a Christian hedonist, which sounds o- oxymoron at first, right? Hedonism ultimately, normally we would think of hedonism like the things it's talking about here. Right, Pursuing anything that you want in your flesh, orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, all those things. But what he says when he talks about being a Christian hedonist is he says, I am desiring my best. I want the very best that is possible in my life, and that will only ever be found in glorifying God. And so the banner statement over what they talk about when they say Christian hedonism is God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him. And so I want you to think about that. If we live in a way that glorifies God in everything that we do and that we are satisfied in that and we are having a joy that can only be found in him, that that is an ultimate picture that is loving towards everyone around you because you are showing them what is true of who they are and what is true of who you are and the way you were created to be. And so you love people by showing what is true in the way that you walk. And so Colossians chapter four and verse five and six, Paul writes this, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 
And when you read that in context, what I think Paul is saying there is that you live lives that are so glorifying God in everything you do, in the way that you talk, in the way that you respond, in the way that you interact with people around you, and in doing so, that will bring questions. You live lives that are questionable, that people go, why are you so joyful? And it doesn't seem to be dependent on your circumstances. And in doing so, you're loving them because you're showing them what is true about who we are in Christ and the way that we're made. And so when we talk about love, loving, it's in word, it's speaking the truth, it's in deed, it's in acts of service, but it's also in the way in which our life aligns with what we say we believe. And when you take all three of those together, I want you to think about how they come together and how they hold together. Why this is so important when we seek to love those around us. If we're going to be speaking the truth to people, And we're going to be telling them what is true of them and who God is and who Jesus is and what he's done for us. If there's not a balance of our word and our deed, that will fall on deaf ears. If you're just somebody who walks around and preaches to everybody that you see, but your life doesn't have any of those marks in it. People don't want to hear that. Very quickly, they will shut you down. I think it was Benjamin Franklin who very famously said, no one cares what you know until they know what you that you care if you've heard that before, right? And so if you're just preaching all the time, but there's no acts of service that go with it, they're kind of like, yeah, okay. God likes to talk a lot. Likes to tell me how wrong I am. That doesn't mean that God's word is not true, but we want to have that balance of word and deed, which we see perfectly in Jesus's life. Perfect acts of, of service and love and kindness, but at the same time, speaking the truth in every situation. And so when those balance together, it becomes a powerful apologetic for who God is. And so that's why Jesus tells us they will know you're my disciples by the way that you love one another, that this will be in a powerful apologetic of the truth of who we are in Jesus. And so here we often talk about this idea of, of invitation and challenge, invitation being friendship, time spent together, inviting you in as we spend our lives together, serving and loving one another. And then challenge being that we are going to speak the truth to one another. That we are going to tell each other what is true of what God has said. And if the invitation and the challenge are not kind of in the same place, or the invitation is not greater than the challenge, it'll fall on deaf ears. But when those things come together, it's a really powerful place of where discipleship happens, where growth happens. And so I'll give you an example that just happened uh, last week, two weeks ago. I was talking to one of my neighbors, a friend that I've been friends with for a couple years now. And we had a very pointed discussion about the gospel and about Jesus, and about how Christ can only do it, the, 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 the connection between faith and works and where we struggle with those things. And we had about an hour-long conversation. And it was pointed at different times. And we were dising- disagreeing at, at different times. But because of our relationship, because of the invitation being high enough, we could have that conversation and we're done. And it's like, okay, see you later. See you tomorrow. We'll do this again. And there was, there was no animosity Because he knows I love him and I know he loves me. And it's been shown in the way we live our lives together. And so when those things sync up, it becomes this incredible opportunity of word and deed coming together and they glorify who God is more fully. And so if we're going to love others, it's going to be in the way that we live our lives and the way that we serve and this truth that we speak that's in alignment with God's word. But when we think about all of that, the truth is that's hard. It's hard to do that. It's hard to live loving others in the same way you love yourself at every turn. And so how do we begin to do that? 
And so look at the very last verse of what he says here. Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Live out of your identity of who you are in Jesus and everything. Remember the truth of the gospel and what God has done for us in Jesus. And let that clothe you in every situation and everything you do. And so I want you just to think about that for just a second and we'll end here. At the very beginning, I talked about the love of kindness. Right? The, the love that is outwardly focused, wanting the best of those around you. So loving your neighbor as yourself. But then we also talked about there's also the love of joy. The things that you are overwhelmed and taken with that immediately, that require little work because you're just, oh, this is really great. This is wonderful. The things that you feel and you see immediately. And so God is love and he is perfectly in himself, love of joy and of kindness. He's perfectly both. And so God loves us perfectly in Jesus. And so he comes to us to do for us what we could never do for ourselves at the greatest cost to himself. He is the perfect love of kindness, the agape love of God that is shown perfectly for us in Christ. And so Christ, who is God, who holds all things together by the word of his power, who is the creator and sustainer of all things, humbles himself to come to us to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. It is the perfect example and picture of the love of kindness, the agape love that is self, uh, that is, uh, putting ourself aside for the good of others. It's a perfect picture of what Jesus does on the cross. And so he comes for us in this way. And so when we see that and we understand that Jesus becomes sin for us, that he takes our sin upon himself, that he does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And then we begin to experience the love of God through this love of kindness and what Christ has done for us. And when that happens, we begin to experience the true love of joy. Of what we were made to be, what God created us to be, as he welcomes us back into his family through what Jesus has done for us. And so that love of kindness produces a love of joy in us that cannot be found in anything else. And so as he begins to work in us and through us, our joy increases and we start to love and follow him. And as we are obedient, as we are walking that out in him, we begin to have this fullness of joy that he created us for. And it starts to bubble up and starts to overflow. That's why he says, you will know my disciples by the way they love each other. That's why why Jesus says, I've come and I've spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And as we see those things and as we experience and as we grow in them and it overflows and it wells up in us and it's an endless fount of love because it is based on God's love for us in Christ. And we're seeing who we actually are and what we are created to be. And suddenly there's this fount that's inside of us that is overflowing to those around us. And so, so get this, this picture here. As we experience the unfathomable riches of his grace to us, his love to us, his kindness to us, and we understand it, then we begin to show that kindness to others. Out of that joy that we now have, it overflows into a love of kindness for those around us. Because that's who God is and that's what he has done for us. And as we see that, we grow up into that. And we get to show that love to those around us. And it's all because of what God has done for us in Jesus. And so there will be times... When loving others as you love yourself is really hard. You don't want to do that. You don't feel that. But in remembering what God has done for us in Jesus, that he has shown us that kindness when we didn't deserve it. In our rebellion, he pursued us. 
in his great love and kindness, he continued to show it to us. In that, we see what we are in Christ and who we are in him, and then it overflows to those around us. And it is only there that we find that love that continues to go out in all things, and it's because of what Jesus has done. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel, that you have done for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves, that in this love with you, in the midst of it, of understanding who you are, you do this work in and through us. I pray that when we forget that, when we turn our focus uh, away from you, that you would just continue to pursue us and remind us what is true of us in you, that we would overflow with that love to those around us, that we would show what you're like, that we would glorify you in all things. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.